with chocolate treats mixed into dark chocolate ice cream, the Tillamook Chocolate Collection is a chocolate game changer because the thing that pairs best with chocolate is more chocolate. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream. Extraordinary Dairy. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox. Welcome to With Friends Like These. I have a great show for you today. I'm going to talk to Graham Wood, who's a writer for The Atlantic, who recently profiled Richard Spencer, the white nationalist, and talk to Francesca Ramsey, who's the host of Decoded on MTV uh, and a writer, activist, actress. And it's funny, like I, when I was putting the show together, I didn't think that it had a theme. I just thought, well, these are two interesting people whose work deals with difference. Uh, Graham Wood usually writes about ISIS, and his piece about Richard Spencer wound up sort of almost drawing from that. We talk about that, but uh, he went to high school with Richard Spencer. So I thought, with friends like these, like, what a perfect kind of parallel subject for him. And then Francesca is always dealing with, uh, you know, wokeness on Decoded. Uh, and having finding ways to use humor to get to uncomfortable topics. So I thought I thought it was just sort of a natural fit for the show. I didn't realize that we have a theme, and that theme is empathy, a little more explicitly than usual, uh, about the limits and costs of having empathy for someone who doesn't just disagree with you, but whose ideas are loathsome or even antithetical to your existence what does it mean to have empathy for those people and why should you and what does it do to you so that's the big question and that's the one i get into pretty explicitly with graham so you'll want to hang on for that uh the first part of the show however is coming right up and that's my interview with francesca ramsey all right well welcome to the show francesca ramsey actress writer hostess of Decoded on MTV. How are you? I'm doing good. Are you really? Because I sometimes like I have to think about that all the time now. Like, are you are um, you really doing good? No, you, you know, it's weird. I will say I do feel conflicted because like there's so much turmoil in the world. But personally, I've been having a really good year, just like <laughs> career wise. Um, like my marriage is freaking strong. I'm like, like some days I don't want to talk about how good I feel because I realize a lot of people are stressed out and very rightly so. Right. I mean, so the the phrase that I've been using is Trump adjusted terms. So (laughs) you like for living under president Trump, I'm doing well. Thank you. Like that is, that is like, I like that. I'm going to start using that. (laughs) And it's just true. Like we just like. You know, what's interesting, maybe this will get us right into our conversation, because what I find interesting about that statement is that, you know, as a fairly privileged, you know, white, cis, straight, you know, married, upper income lady, like that's been true for all of my life, right? Like I'm doing great mm-hmm. compared to most people. <laughs> I, I just have been like, there's no time. Like I I've had my issues that I struggle with, you know, right. like personal, whatever, like mental health, you know, whatnot, family tragedy. But my life has been pretty 
fucking charmed. And yeah, <laughs> and it's just having Trump as president has made me aware of that. Right. Well, I mean, even for me, it's like I can sympathize in some respects that like, yeah, you know, I, I was very fortunate to have come from a two parent household, you know, and and be middle class. And, you know, I, I can also acknowledge my privilege as like a straight cis woman. Um, but with that said, I feel like what's going on in the world, especially in our country right now, while some of it doesn't directly affect me, um, it can just really weigh on you. You know, it feels sometimes like, you know, there's all of these things are so big and you can't actually do anything about it. And the more stories you hear about people who are directly impacted, um, especially for LGBT folks and immigrants and, and, you know, just as a woman, especially with um, the things that are happening with healthcare and mm-hmm. Planned Parenthood, even though the fact that I have healthcare um, it still is really scary. And I think in some ways, the fact that some things don't directly impact me make it, you know, just as difficult because you do feel this disconnect um, between it actually influencing your daily life. And, you know, if you're an empathetic person, that can still be really hard to wrestle with. Yeah. And I just think it's interesting that, um, I mean, I hate, I do not, I refuse to see this as like a silver lining. I don't even hate the term silver lining. No. <laughs> uh, but I do, I can kind of get my head around and maybe agree with the idea that there's an opportunity available with Trump Absolutely. becoming president. Because we were yeah, just I as racist, just as sexist before he was president, you right. know, but no one, we didn't realize it. Like, or a lot of you, maybe <laughs> I shouldn't say that we, yeah. the we there is kind of unclear, but <laughs> I guess a lot of people yeah. didn't realize it. I think a lot of us realized it, yeah. but a lot of people are having their eyes open to it. And I like the way of you phrasing it as an opportunity. And I do think this is an opportunity for us to have difficult conversations with our friends, with our family members, with our coworkers, that maybe we didn't feel like we had uh, a starting off point for these conversations in the past. Um, it's unfortunate that it has taken this new administration to get us here. Um, but I think, you know, I'm looking at the the media landscape and I'm seeing so many people using their platforms and using their voices to talk about, you know, the way these issues are impacting them, but also to really kind of call out um, privileged folks who never cared about these issues to begin with. So um, I do think that that's a positive thing. And that gets us sort of right into one of the one of the things I wanted to talk to you about the most, which is the color of late night. <laughs> um, so you and I actually met uh, on the set of The Nightly Show, um, mm-hmm. Larry Wilmore's show, which you had a you you were in. Uh, that show is now canceled. So now um, there's this boom in late night comedy, right? Like there are better ratings than ever. Uh, everyone's become political. There was just today, like, let's play the world's smallest violin for Jimmy Fallon. Apparently he feels bad about his Trump interview. (laughs) (laughs) And he's like, he's the one who's doing worst in late night, right? Because he's a fucking, you know. And he's never really been a political commentator. Oh, God, no. Like, he's like the opposite, (laughs) right? Um, I wonder, I guess, like, they have Questlove. So, like, I mean, (laughs) do they feel like they don't need to mention politics otherwise? Like, I wonder, I've interviewed Questlove before. I kind of want to interview him again about 
because he's very aware, you know. Right. Um, and but I mean, even look at that. They have Questlove, like, in the band. So it's like, yeah, you have Questlove and you're not even giving him a voice. the platform to really, like, use his voice. Like, literally uh, voice, right? right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> literally your, your, like, backup, which is bizarre. Um, so, yeah, so that, so, but Sam, Sam B, uh, you know, Colbert, um, uh, Seth Meyers, like all these, you know, you know Trev, Trevor Noah, I guess we, we can count him. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, we can count him, sure. But it's pretty fucking white, you know? Yeah. And well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's, I feel like there's another answer in that sigh. Tell me more. Well, I mean, uh, here's the thing. Um, I think that it's really awesome that so many people are using their platforms to talk about Trump in a critical way. And I feel like this is the same thing that happened in 2000 with Bush. You know, like that was the golden age of The Daily Show. And mm-hmm. I think that that's what comedy's job is, is to speak truth to power and to give us a break, especially in hard times. Um, as for why there isn't more diversity in late night, I mean, I can't really say uh, one way or another, like that there's a specific reason for that. But I think that throughout history, you know, people have given opportunities to folks that look like them. And unfortunately, in mainstream media, like it is still a very white space. Um, But I'm glad that that's changing. You know, Robin Thede, who I also worked with at Nightly Show, um, has a, a project coming out on BET um, and of course, you know, we've got Trevor Noah and, and I'm super excited to be working on a pilot at Comedy Central. Um, and I think that what we're seeing is more diverse voices on television, period. And the response from audiences has been so positive that, you know, we're in a space where networks can't help but continue to give us opportunities because, our voices are needed, but it's also profitable. Like people want to see <laughs> people that look like them on TV and also just hear different perspectives. Yeah. Um, we here at Crooked Media say capitalism is our Kickstarter. So um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, you know, as an old timey Marxist, I'm a little bit suspicious of capitalism as an engine to create change. But, you know, like, sure, like it sort of seems to be working. It's a little bit now after hundreds of years of not working, but you know. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I try to be an optimist in the sense <laughs> that like, I think that there's a net positive. Right. Yeah. And so I think the more opportunities to see and hear different perspectives on television, um, the better and representation has so many positive outcomes, not just for, you know, the chance to see a black woman in late night is amazing, but it also isn't just for black young women or, or girls that are seeing that. It's just people who maybe live in parts of the country who don't know any black people and have never been exposed to um, that perspective before. And just humanizing people in a way that they maybe don't realize some of the preconceptions that they have about that demographic or that type of person, just seeing them as like a normal, fully fleshed person that has a sense of humor and a perspective on um on the world around them like is a really positive thing blacks they're just like us is that what yes exactly oh, yeah, okay <laughs> and <laughs> um i i actually i think that you have a good point and we talk about that on on this show a fair amount like the idea that you get to know people unlike yourself and you're and you realize you you do have this 
what seems like it should be intuitive, but isn't, you know, that people who are different right. have you have more in common with people who are different than you have differences usually because, you know, we share all the genes and stuff and human experiences. But of course, like the yeah, other and to that point and to that point, differences aren't a bad thing. I right. think that that's important to note, too, that like it's okay to acknowledge that you and I are different and have different experiences. It's not inherently a bad thing. And I think sometimes people are too quick to be like, we're all the same. We all bleed red. It's like, technically, yes. But <laughs> we move through the world very differently, and it's okay to acknowledge that. Right. That's the tension, um, right? And that's actually something right. that I definitely like value. And one of the reasons why this I came, wanted to do this show is to actually talk about the differences that especially I think white people want to be like, you know what? Hey, I have black friends and Latino friends now, so let's. I don't have to talk about it anymore. Right. I don't right. have to actually ask them about their experiences. And I sort of want to get to get to that, which is that so there's this tension between one reason why you want representation both in like your personal relationships and in media is to see the commonalities. But the other reason you want representation is to hear about the differences. Right. Like, right. That's there. Those two things go go together. You know, it's not. And, and I guess one of the things I wanted to ask you, and I feel a little dumb asking this, but I'm going to go ahead and ask is that. <laughs> Um, so it is a pretty white late night. Um, the criticisms that are coming from about Trump in comedy are coming largely from white voices, although Sam B has a fairly diverse writer's room and, and, Mm -hmm. and representation, but that comedy about Trump is so critical. I do feel like I hear this like nagging conservative voice in the back of my head that probably is my in-laws, um, asking, well, how would having people of color make the same jokes be different? What would what would we get if we had more people of color doing comedy? About I mean, I, I think it's a matter of like self-reflection and also personal connection to um, Trump's policies and the way that they are uh, impacting people. And I think that's a big part of why Sam B is so great. Right. Because as a woman, the passion that she delivers when talking about Planned Parenthood or, um, you know, Healthcare is going to be very different from a straight white cis dude who, you know, is not really going to have the same connection to Planned Parenthood services um, within his personal life or within his friends. And I feel, you know, it's the same for people of color. There's going to be a level of understanding uh, about these issues because for many of us, they hit us in a very personal way. Right. And also, I think. I mean, I do think that one thing actually we joked about at the very beginning, but I think one thing that having a diverse set of voices, especially people of color, but also like, you know, it would be nice to also hear from like disabled community and comedy about. Oh, Trump, my God. You know, absolutely. <laughs> like, I mean, because I, I, I interviewed Alice Wong on this show and she's hilarious. Number one. Um, and number two, like she was like so great about pointing out, you know, the things that she doesn't like about Trump. Like I brought up. Um, him making fun of the reporter, the disabled mm-hmm. reporter, as something that, oh, that probably made you angry or whatever. And she Absolutely. said, not, you know, not really compared to what he's doing to Medicaid. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. <laughs> and I was like yeah, you know what? And the services that are really impacting people with disabilities. Yeah. You know? and, and even when we talk about health care, you know, I thought it was so interesting that freaking Miss USA went on and on about how health care is a privilege. And because of a job and not that we should be looking at Miss USA as like a beacon <laughs> of intelligence, but like what she said, I think was really 
like symptomatic of the way a lot of people think about healthcare. I They're think like, well, if you have a job, then you have healthcare. And it's like, uh, there are people with disabilities who physically cannot work. Like they can't work and they still need healthcare, you know? And also we so, are we are almost unique among nations in doing healthcare that way. Like that we are like considered fucking savages. By, by a lot the of way the that, world. Like, oftentimes the way that we talk about um issues is really just like completely leaves people with disabilities out of the conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think we really have to change the way that we talk about people with disabilities in that they are fully formed humans that like deserve the same rights as us. And, but at the same time have different needs and challenges. And it's really unfair to just say like, well, pick yourself up by your bootstraps when like not everyone has the ability, like quite literally the ability to do that. Um, And so again, it would be really great to see more voices in media that come from those different walks of life that are going to actually be affected by these things. And, you know, can talk about them in a way that someone like myself, an able-bodied person or a straight person is going to say, oh crap, I did not think about that issue and how it was going to affect people that don't look like me. And I just feel even like people coming from those communities would see different things to make fun of about Trump. Oh, right. <laughs> you know, because like, I feel like there's a the trope that, that, you know, we have in, you know, sort of mainstream late night comedy criticisms of Trump are largely like he's dumb and he's arrogant um and or he has small hands right 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 he has a small dick it's just like okay great like personally (laughs) i remember when there was like this giant trump statue uh that was popping up when it was like him naked yeah and everyone was like laughing about how funny it was that they gave this statue a small dick and i just kept thinking to myself like not that i want to advocate for trump but like i really don't give a shit like if he has a small dick because like that has (laughs) nothing to do with why i dislike him and to me, I felt like that was just such a a lazy joke that required no actual like skill or talent. Like that is a a grade school like bully type of joke, you know. Yeah, and yeah. It, not to mention the fact like there are other people in this world who are like nice people and don't treat people like crap who have small dicks and like right. I don't, I was going to say, like, it sounds really weird, but, like, let's not center everything on the genitals. Like, that's what, as feminists, yeah. it, like, we're trying to, right, and people who care about gender, who, people who want to acknowledge, like, a spectrum of gender and a spectrum of sexuality, like, we really kind of want to get away. Absolutely. <laughs> it's like, how can you, how can you be so upset about Trump's, like, grab her by the pussy comments and then turn right around and be like, yeah, well, he's like this because he has a small dick. And it's like, are you like missing the fact that you are boiling down someone's humanity to their genitals? A terrible person. Like, don't get me wrong. But I think people have to remember that there are consequences to the things that they say outside of that one person. Like the people who are hearing that dumb joke are also affected by it in the way that they connect to that joke and who the joke is about or what the joke is about. Um, yeah, I do want to emphasize. So, I, yeah, I, I do think he probably has a small penis. Like, I'm just gonna. I, I think <laughs> that's, that's all on you. It's it's all on me. But I'm just gonna say, um, I do think that's probably true. And but here's actually the reason why I even make that joke at the end of the conversation about why that's a problematic joke to make is I do think the one defense of it is that that is something that would get to him, like. That is, you know, it's actually also a sort of meta commentary on his values. 
Yeah. Um, in that he probably cares a lot about what people think of his the size of his yeah i mean that's true but for me i think about like why i think that to pull back the bigger issue is like why does he place so much value in that and in reality he's not the only person that does (laughs) no no he's not (laughs) outside of him you know and like that's what that's what i think of i think of like all of the people who hear that joke or hear that criticism and apply it to themselves or to their partner. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I don't know, I really try to express like a level of empathy in my comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not easy. Like there's a lot of jokes that are like, Oh, that's a good, that's a funny joke, but is it a good joke? Mm-hmm. Like what are the consequences of that joke? And that's something that I um, really try to be thoughtful about because I want, I want people from all backgrounds to be able to enjoy my work and I never want anybody to watch. I mean, it's inevitable. Like you can't, you can't never offend someone, but as much as possible, I really want to make sure that people can enjoy my work and um, not feel alienated or not feel like they are the target of what I'm saying. You know, that gets us to another a question um, that I had for you about Decoded and about what you're doing with your comedy, which is... Um, mm-hmm. Like, I, I think I wrote you that it's about waking people, but now I also want to call it woking people. <laughs> um, and that's comedy is, is a great place to do that. Right. Like a great avenue in. Um, but it seems also especially difficult sort of for the reasons that you're talking about, you know, right. like the because one thing comedy is about is breaking boundaries, saying rude things, um, walking the edge of insult, even if you don't insult. Um, you know, it's about extremes. Like that's someone told me, I remember like one of the, some language arts class in junior high or something. I remember one of the first things that like someone tried to articulate the first ever time I ever thought about comedy as a thing you could talk about as a subject. I remember a teacher saying mm-hmm. that comedy was about extremes. So how do you do that? You know, like what is your sense of, you know, when you walk into this project, what lines are you thinking about? I mean, for us, we we really try to make Decoded about answering questions. Um, and, and that was really like the purpose of our show all the way down to the name. Just like, what does this mean? Where does this come from? And so we try, really try to put ourselves in our audience's shoes. Um, but we also try to look at it from a variety of perspectives um, so that we can ask the uncomfortable questions that people might have about race and identity. Um, and then we can find funny ways to answer them. Um, and it's of course not easy. You know, I said that we really try and I personally try to go out of my way to make sure that our work is accessible, but there are lots of people who swear up and down that our show is about hating white people. Even sometimes (laughs) when there's an episode where the word white is not even mentioned, people just swear up and down that it's about them. Um, and I think that that really speaks to people's discomfort when it comes to talking about race and identity, because we have really pushed this idea of we're all the same. We don't have to talk about our differences. Um, There are people who are always going to be uncomfortable acknowledging it, especially when it makes them feel as if they've done something wrong or they're complicit in someone's mistreatment or oppression. Um, And so while that's unfortunate, I can't do anything about that. Um, And instead, what we try to do is find humorous ways to be honest Um, And poke fun at, you know, ignorance and 
and things that can be hurtful, but in a way that's empowering for the people who are on the receiving end of that hurt. You mentioned something that is a watchword of the show, which is, you know, discomfort is a tool of oppression um, in the sense that, you know, white people will do almost anything to remain comfortable. Right. Um, right. I think that it's uncomfortable to, again, I think what's interesting, and you did a, you did, you did something about this, which is that is racist, the, the white people's inward, um, which I think is a great way of framing the idea because it's, I understand exactly what you're talking about. And it's something we've talked about on the show before, which is that you, the thing that like a, that white people hate the most is being called racist. Um, and it's because that makes them have to think think about it. And now I have actually, my opinion is actually, that's not even a useful thing to do anymore because it's such a, such a explosive um, term. Like I prefer mm-hmm. to talk about um, white supremacy, which seems like it'd be more explosive, but right. in a way, like I think is a better description of what happens in life mm-hmm. um, is that we are part of a structure of white supremacy. It's not that individual people are, not, I mean, there are racists. Yeah. And that's really, but, yeah, and that's really hard for people to understand. And that's something that we talk about a lot on our show is that like actions can be racist. It doesn't necessarily mean that you as an individual are walking through the world believing that you are the supreme race and everyone is beneath you. There's a lot of unconscious bias that presents itself in our daily lives that we don't realize we are buying into, like that our system is perpetuating Um, And so, yes, there are individuals who actively participate in upholding white supremacy. um, And then there are more often than not people that don't acknowledge it or don't realize it because we've worked so hard to pretend it doesn't exist, that they are reinforcing it without even realizing it. Yeah. Um, I actually was thinking about you mentioned, you know, having uncomfortable conversations and you, you work to use humor and all that. And you've done so many different hot button topics, right? On your on your mm-hmm. show, um, show series. I don't know what do we call these things um, that are on. The, um, it's a web series. It's a web series. But sure, you can call it a show. A too. show, <laughs> sure. And I, I presume if on your show that will maybe happening, you might do this as well. Um, mm-hmm. Are there things that you're still uncomfortable talking about yourself, or uncomfortable about bringing to people's attention? Um, yeah, you know, it's funny. My nickname, uh, in college was Prudy because I hate talking about sex. And when my friends talk about their sex lives, I always get really uncomfortable. And I, um, I think I'm just like a very private person in that respect, but I do think there are a lot of stigmas around sex and sexuality. Um, uh, especially with, you know, people who have, um, sexual needs that are different from our own, whether it's their sexuality or, um, you know, who, what they participate in with their partner consensually. What they're into is, I believe, what we call it sometimes. Yes. There's just like a lot of stigma (laughs) around that. And I realize I buy into it in the sense that like, I feel uncomfortable when people talk about their sex lives. I feel uncomfortable or I'm confused when, you know, um, I know someone that's polyamorous and I love her very much. And I remember when she told me, I was just so confused. And I thought to myself, I don't feel good about the fact that I am like harboring some sort of judgment here. And I don't know why, like she's happy. Her partners are happy. Like, why am I so uncomfortable with this? Um, 
Well, here's a here's I'm going to channel my inner I'm going to channel my inner in-law and ask a question about that, which is that I I can just hear my mother-in-law's voice so clearly about this. Um, Well, you should be uncomfortable because that's naughty stuff. That's (laughs) that stuff that you're not supposed to talk about in public. And also she's doing something that is against human nature. And (laughs) therefore, we have an instinctual response to it of, um, you know. Uh, disgust, which is totally appropriate. And I want to make clear that I'm, I'm channeling a, right. a conservative voice that is not my actual thought. But, you, well, but the, what is the response to that? For me, I'm always of the mind that if you are not hurting yourself or anyone else, that like, I am totally okay with it. And what <laughs> consenting adults choose to do in the bedroom is really not my business. Um, and so for me, it was less about thinking about naughty things, but... I think it was, again, more of a reflection of myself of like, oh, my God, I could never. I could never do that. I would never be okay with that. Um, And applying that to her relationship and realizing that I have to let that judgment go because what she's doing with her partners has nothing to do with me. But I also realized that that is a very still taboo type of relationship and conversation. Um, and I do think that that's something for that reason that's worth exploring, um, because I know it's something that if if I felt that sort of weirdness about it, and I consider myself to be a very liberal, open-minded person, I'm sure there are way more people that feel that way too, um, and all the more reason to explore that, to hopefully um, destigmatize it and give people a chance to be who they really are. I'm sure there are people who would like to be in those types of relationships, but are afraid to because of the social stigmas. And I actually think the way to talk about that with people who have, um, who think that they are channeling a conservative worldview when they comment on it um, Mm -hmm. is, you know, you're the one who's thinking about the naughty stuff, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like you're the one who's thinking about what they do in the bedroom. Like, I I mean, if that's disturbing to you, then you should not think about it. it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly what I say so often to people who have criticisms of like LGBT folk. It's like no one is forcing you to think about like what they do in the bathroom or what they do in the bedroom. Like you are the one that is deciding to do that. And it actually doesn't affect you at all. (laughs) You know, so with that said, it was kind of a hard pill for me to swallow that I needed to have that conversation with myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's one that I'm, I'm open to talking about because I kind of think too often we're afraid to acknowledge our own bias and our own mistakes and how we can, or how we need to learn from them. And I mean, for me, that's a big part of what my work is about doing that in a funny way that hopefully makes more people open to acknowledging where they need to learn and where they need to grow. Cause I'm, I'm trying to do that myself. Do you have um, any uncomfortable conversations in in your life with people you disagree with? Yeah, I do. You know, I am trying not to have them online uh, because it's just, I found not productive. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like, and I used to do more of it. Like I used to be way more willing to engage with trolls trolls or people that would just say really hateful, ignorant things to me on the internet. Um, I really found it empowering oftentimes um, to kind of assert my opinion and, and really kind of like school people. Um, but I, 
I realize that that's just like not really product, a productive use of my time. I don't think the other person gets anything out of it. Um, and I think just like the performative nature of the internet is makes it just a really bad place to have those conversations. Um, so I'm trying to really talk to more people offline, have more phone calls. Um, and actually I've been talking to someone over the course of a month <clears throat> who considers himself to be an anti-feminist. And wow. the way that we got connected is that he made some videos about me. Huh. Um, there's like a huge genre of people talking about how much they dislike me on YouTube. <laughs> it's really <laughs> quite interesting. And I, uh, reached out to him just to try and get a better understanding of like why he makes this content and um, why he feels the way that he does about my work and just feminism in general. And it's been really eye-opening. Like there's still a lot of things that we don't agree on, but I think that I, a lot of things were confirmed for me that I already knew, but just needed to hear from someone else that like a lot of the criticisms that he has about feminism and about social justice are really more about him and not about, you know, the people that are advocating for these issues. And um, also just like a lack of understanding and a feeling of guilt on certain things. And um, it's, again, it's been really eye-opening and I'm, I'm really hoping to use some of that in my work going forward, because I think the way that we talk about these issues is not reaching a lot of there are certain people that it's just not reaching. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a big part of why I wanted to talk to him just to understand like how he's interpreting my content and how he's interpreting these conversations um, and figuring out what that disconnect is. Yeah. I think that there's a real interesting sort of meta conversation. Maybe it's not a conversation because it's being, being conducted in actions and not words, but there's an interesting, it's an interesting moment for uh how one interacts with those who not just disagree with you, right? I mean, because I think like like when we talk about Trump supporters versus you know progressives, um, mm-hmm. you know, as you know, my friends in the mostly LGBTQ community remind me, like this isn't just about they don't like these people, right? Like it's mm-hmm. you should not exist, right? And on the one hand. It's not just again. Is we we progress beyond a place of disagreement in our politics. Um, it's now almost existential in terms of 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 the values the different polar sides have. So, do you engage? Right. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's like a personal choice. Like, I don't think everyone should have to engage, and I think that. You know, for me, what's really frustrating, and I understand this is frustrating for a lot of people, is this constant mantra of, you know, we need to reach across the aisle. And I don't believe that that's not, that's untrue. But for some people, especially the marginalized folks who are most affected by Trump's policies, the people who are really dealing with matters in life of life and death, the fact that we're constantly being told that we need to prove our humanity to people that don't believe that we deserve the same rights as they do and have actively supported a man who has said and done really freaking hurtful things. It's like infuriating. It's like, why do I have to be the bigger person? Why do I have to start dialogue with someone who's never wanted to have dialogue with me, who's someone that has never seen me as a fully formed human person? Um, That's really frustrating, especially for people who have these conversations all the time. 
just moving through the world as a marginalized person, like we're constantly being asked to explain things to people mm-hmm. and prove to people that we should be treated the same as them. And so like, that's really freaking frustrating and exhausting. So I get that there are a lot of people who don't want to do it. And I think that they should not have to. That said, I think that some of us, you know, I think that if you have the space to do it and also I think that that's really the responsibility of people who want to call themselves allies. You know, as a straight person, I have to have tough conversations with my straight friends when and if they say something that is homophobic mm-hmm. or with my, my other cis friends who say something that's transphobic. My trans friends are tired of having those conversations, which is all the more reason that I should have them mm-hmm. um, and help aid them because, you know, unfortunately, people who look like me are going to be more receptive to hearing that from me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's I think it's an interesting and um, not uh, s- stable situation, you know, um, because there's the all, there's lots of different centers of gravity on whether or not uh, on the relationships you might have with someone who disagrees with right. you, who's across, who's different than you, who's across the aisle in some way. I agree, like, that I think it's on people who are relatively privileged um, to practice um, our own form of respectability politics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, like we need to police our people, um, tell them yeah. to pull their pants up and whatnot. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, you need to call in your own, your own folks. Yeah. You need to do it. It's just like, because I've, I've seen it so many times, um, especially like in the YouTube space, it's really interesting um, that I can make a video about feminism or about racism and get tons of hateful comments from people that are like, you're lying. You don't know what you're talking about. You're a racist. You hate men, whatever it is. And like a white man can make that same video. And like the comments are overwhelmingly positive and saying like, wow, I never thought about it this way. Like you really opened my eyes. And I'm just like, (laughs) part of me thinks like, that's so annoying. But then the other part of me thinks like, oh, wow, at least they learned something and because it came through that voice. And so I would rather them learn something than not have their eyes opened at all. Yeah. Um, and hopefully now they'll be more receptive to hearing things from me because this white dude's voice helped filter it and make it more palatable for them. Well, I await uh, Jimmy Fallon's uh, wokeness video like that, I guess. <laughs> The thing that I will roll my eyes and I will still be <laughs> thankful that it exists. <laughs> All right, we've run out of time, but thank you so much uh, for being on the show. I look forward oh, to seeing you, you on um, your show. Do you have any more details about that Comedy Central thing that might be? No, I mean, there's not much that I can say um, other than the fact that I'm just excited to kind of talk about identity in a funny way that hopefully is going to reach lots of people. Um, It's a big challenge, but, you know, with great risk comes great reward. Um, And I'm just really thankful that Comedy Central is open to the idea of tackling identity and and social issues in a really fun and cutting edge way. Um, And I just I feel really fortunate to have that support and also just the support from my audience. So many people have reached out to say they're excited about the prospect of me having my own show. Um, so that's, that's really helped motivate me and inspire me to just make great stuff. All right. Well, we'll have you back to talk about it. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Francesca. 
You're listening to With Friends Like These with Anna Marie Cox. At a time when it feels like it's never been harder to find the truth, supporting a free press is critically important. It's important to support people like Francesca, support people like Graham. And in fact, Graham works for The Atlantic. And The Atlantic happens to be available to you via the app Texture. And Texture has supported journalism not just by offering access to great magazines, but also financially a portion of every subscriber's fee goes to the publishers. The Texture app has gone beyond delivering just the magazine itself. They've made it easy to find and enjoy the articles you want to read with daily recommendations, exclusive interactive features, videos, and more. Texture makes magazines easy. And there are so many great ones out there. I mean, I do read The Atlantic. Texture is actually terrible for me because it always just makes me feel bad about myself because there's so much to read and I don't get to read it all. But it does mean that I only have to carry around my iPad and not a stack of magazines. Uh, You can find Vanity Fair, Time, The New Yorker, Rolling Stone. Also fun stuff. Domino, uh, The House Magazine, um, Style Magazines, uh, Gossip Magazines. They're all on there. And it's searchable, and you can mark what you like, and you can check out back issues and view bonus content, and they curate articles and magazines just for you or whoever you are giving Texture to this year. Texture is normally $9.99 a month, and you get over 200 magazines. But if you sign up right now at texture.com slash friends, you get a 14-day free trial. Again, that's texture.com slash friends in a 14-day free trial. It's not even long enough for you to build up a backlog to feel bad about. Why subscribe to just a couple of magazines when you can have all of your favorites on your smartphone or tablet all the time for wait less? Plus, Texture was selected as one of Apple's top 2016 iPad apps. So start your free trial now and download the Texture app. Again, a free 14-day trial to listeners of With Friends Like These. If you go to texture.com slash friends, again, 14 days free, texture.com slash friends. Welcome to the show, Graham Wood, a national correspondent for The Atlantic, also author of the Just Out. Is that correct? Uh, a couple months. A couple yeah. months. Eh, just, you know, um, that's forever in Trump time, but relatively recent in book time, The Way of the Strangers. And I am sure it's fascinating. I've followed your work at The Atlantic covering the Islamic State, ISIS, um, terrorism. And that's I, I would say that's how I knew who you were. Um, that's kind of your day job, I would guess. Um but the piece that we're going to talk about is different. Or maybe it's not, actually. You, you tell me. The piece that we, I want to talk to you about is this piece that um, came out um, recently called His Kampf. And it's a profile of Richard Spencer that you wrote from a very different perspective than your other pieces, I would, I would think. Um, it's about sort of how you went to high school together and a little bit how your paths diverged. But it I was, first of all, wondering, did you make a decision to do this kind of personal piece? Was that a conscious thing? Or did you think, oh, I'm Richard Spencer, someone I know, I'm going to write about him, and I happen to go to high school with him? I had no option but to make this a personal piece. I, I've known Richard for so long. I have such vivid memories of him when we were adolescents that it, it, I think it would have been false for me to try to describe him or profile him just as a grown-up. So I've known him long enough to have watched the progression that, that he's had from a pretty nondescript high school kid in, in North Dallas, Texas, to what he's become. Did it feel different for you to, to start writing, to start uh, reporting, writing this piece um, 
in such a personal way? There is an aspect to it that, that, that does feel very personal because it, it goes back to, to who I used to be when I knew him. And that, that has to be said, too, for, for, for purposes of honesty. But, you know, in, in a lot of my conversations with, with subjects who are not Richard Spencer, who are people I haven't known for a long time, it's also been important for me to sort of immerse myself in their lives. If they're ISIS supporters, then go to the sermons that they preach to hang out with their followers. And so in, in some ways, this was, was less personal than others because just talking to him and having known him before and then finding out what he says now, it's, it's so alienating relative to the familiarity with this personality type that I knew growing up. That's interesting because I was wondering sort of the parallels and, and, and places that uh, the reporting on ISIS and reporting on Richard Spencer diverge. Because one of the fascinating little details is that when you talk to him about your uh, reporting on ISIS, he, he tells you that your story is really popular in his group, right? Like he says, like, your story is really popping with, like, the alt-right online. Yeah, he said to me, as soon as I met him, uh, for the first time in about 10 years, he said, the alt-right kind of likes your writing on ISIS. And I, I really winced because I, I said, is it because you're super Islamophobic? Because a lot of Islamophobes have liked that I talk about Islam in the context of the Islamic State. And he said, no, it's because ISIS is like us. Yes. And that they are a kind of intellectual <laughs> movement. People don't recognize them as such. And you actually ask them, what are your ideas? And you don't like their ideas, and you probably don't like my ideas as an alt-right guy. But yeah, it's the same kind of thing. You're, you're, you're asking a group that is, is reviled and abominated by the mainstream to explain itself. And uh, that's what he was ready to do when I started putting the screws to him. Right. And you said when you answered the previous question that when you write about ISIS, you it, it sounds like you said you try to immerse yourself in their culture. And I imagine that in order to hear them as they should be heard, you have to develop some empathy for these people. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, with with, with Richard, it the empathy almost comes preloaded because right. we come from the same milieu. We went to the same school. And with ISIS, you, you have to hang out with them to realize the ways in which they're different and the ways in which they're the same. So, you know, I, I would go play soccer with a jihadist cell in Melbourne, Australia, and it would, you know, the the, the aspects of their movement that were alien to me were pretty obvious. They <laughs> believed in genocide and so on. But then to realize that they also like Monty Python movies and they are as, you know, they're, they're, they play the same sports and have the same pop culture that they that they come from that 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 took some effort whereas with richard it was it was more a uh kind of task of of learning just how much the divergence has happened rather than with isis discovering how much convergence there actually is yeah i wondered if it was almost a, you know an opposite kind of process in the sense that with ISIS cells, like you're developing empathy, you're starting from a place of like, I don't, I reject this ideology, I reject their values, but I'm going to, you know, figure out what some of their humanity is so I can hear them, right? That's the project. I, I would think that for me, when I'm interviewing people that I disagree with, the reason I want to develop that empathy is so that I don't um, blind myself to what they're saying, you know, so they try to hear what they're saying as, as clearly as possible. But it seems like with Spencer, what what might have happened, and you tell me if I'm wrong, is like you start with the empathy and then it's almost as though you have to work to hang on to it because he's become someone else. 
right? Yeah, it, with with Richard, you know, as with ISIS, a lot of people try to psychologize or to describe where the person comes from. In terms of the politics of the place where he grew up, it, it, you know, you, you, you try to psychologize, you try to come up with some idea of how does someone get to be so screwed up and so, so weird. And with Richard, having actually known exactly where he comes from, being totally familiar with the types of politics that he would have known growing up, it, 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 was, it was definitely an effort of, of finding out why given how the huge number of people who, who started off that way, why is he the only one who's basically a Nazi today? That was the, the kind of underlying question of, of, of my profile. Then do you feel like you got an answer to that? I did get an answer. You know, the, the, the first explanation that people reach to in the case of, of Richard is he comes from the South. You know, in the, in the South in the 1990s, it, everybody was super racist. And you know, I remember racism in Dallas in the 1990s. Of, of course, there was racism there. The answer that I got to how he turned that kind of racism into something completely different or something at a, a, a different league was surprising to me. The answer was, was basically that he discovered Wagner, he discovered German culture, and then he went to the University of Chicago, not hey, a place no. that we usually think of as a, a breeding ground for white supremacy. But he, he took a, a kind of love of German culture and then supercharged it with one year worth of graduate school that you know, made him, I, I got to say, he, he's a reader. He's someone who really cares about ideas, and he has basically the worst ideas that you could possibly get out of one year in grad, grad school <laughs> at the University of Chicago. Um, but it's not something that you get sitting around with Republicans uh, in the Dallas Country Club or really anywhere else in, in polite society in Texas. Right. It was actually sort of the fever dream of his own isolation in a way. I mean, okay, so full disclosure, I went to University of Chicago. Also, I went to a year of grad school um, somewhere, elsewhere. <laughs> so I'm a little defensive. But um, at the same time, I can see how it happened for him. And I would say, I mean, I think it's an interesting question about whether or not you can blame Wagner. Um, and, and not that you're blaming Wagner, but sort of drawing this direct line. Because what I would say about, you know, having gone to UFC and knowing the culture there and the people there. Um, it's, I, I would say the isolation and the hothouse environment is almost as important because the other thing about his ideas, which are the most you know extreme ideas you can get is that I don't think you can grow those in a, any kind of representative sample of normal, you know, American culture, like normal ish. American yeah, culture. I think that's that's quite right. And as as you can attest, UFC is definitely not normal American culture. <laughs> well, what's not normal about it is that it's so isolating and hothouse, right? And also that that it it is you know it's famous for being a place where ideas can be bandied about in in a playful way, in a serious way. And I I think that for most of the people who go there, there's an understanding that, that although you play with ideas, you know you 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 don't take one and run with it for the rest of your life if it's one that has uh, the implications that his do. I mean, he, he would talk to the same professors who would, I'm, I'm sure, year after year bring up to their students 
the idea that maybe you know democracy uh, is a political system that has um, an incomplete theorization behind it. Uh, there are reasons that that one might not like from the perspective of Hobbes or just political philosophy, democracy, and let's talk that through. Um, the conclusion that most people reach is let's keep on talking about that forever. It, you know, it's, a, it's an endless conversation, as, as they used to say in the Chicago Great Books program. Mm-hmm. Whereas with Richard, it was more like, all right, that's a, that's a, the undercutting of democracy is something that I'm going to uh, go pro with, <laughs> as he had. I'm going to actively pursue. Like he took like the sit around getting high talking about like weird ideas to a whole lifestyle. Like the whole yeah. provocative question. He took the the professor's provocative question that you might get as an essay exam at the end of the year and turned it into his life's work. And I think that that's one of the things that people get wrong about Richard Spencer. That they assume that because he is a racist and he's definitely racist, because he's a fascist and he's definitely fascist, that uh, he is rock-headed, that he has no thinking behind him. And that's not quite right. I mean, he is someone who reads books, and to argue against him, you probably require, for most people, certainly for me, you require a trip to the library to figure out where his ideas come from and what what the best responses are. The, the fact of the matter is we've had so few real fascists in American politics over the last 50 years that we we don't really, as you know, normal political actors, have the antibodies for the, the arguments that he gives. So that's, I think, one reason why he's been so dangerous and and really so malignant in in our politics is that he makes people think that he's easy to to, uh, argue against. And actually, it takes some work. And what was it like for you personally, you know, interviewing him, hanging out with him? Because you are not a white person, right, yourself? I I am half white. I have two fully Chinese uh, grandparents and two fully white ones. And so I'm just wondering if that was something that informed your interactions with him today. Like, I'm just curious, like, as someone who he would have, I mean, he's a racist, right? So what was it like being with him and interviewing him and doing this story and knowing that he's a racist? Well, uh, on the one hand, uh, I, I assume he had some awareness that I was not fully white uh, and probably had looked down on me in so, at some level because of that. I'm used to talking to people who despise me, um, <laughs> not because I'm uh, everybody despises me because people I seek out to interview. I was like, be careful. Like, you know, I'm an infidel. Or, we only just or, met. I mean, I'm totally. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I, I think that's another thing that he. Um, he really profits from is the expectation that when he's talking to people, he's, he's doing so with a kind of venomous contempt. And that's not really the case. He instead, instead cultivates a very urbane and polite attitude, uh, including towards half-breeds such as myself. Um, it doesn't mean that it, it doesn't feel filthy to talk to him. But, uh, you know, you'd, you'd be very impressed at some of the delousing products that are on the market. <laughs> you know, you just got to you got to do this kind of thing if you're a journalist. But I am just curious, like, I mean, maybe this is a question that's broader than Richard Spencer, because it is true. Like you talk to people who think that you're an infidel and maybe that is something like as Americans or as like, you know, prog- a progressive person or whatever like that. I'm, I, I don't have a hard time getting my head around like you being in that situation. 
but for some reason, and maybe it's because you did, it's a, a fairly personal essay and you knew each other before he had these incredibly loathsome ideas. Like, I just keep thinking about the conversations you must have had with him. And doesn't he at one point, like you talk about your race with him? I do. Yeah. At, at one point, he, he's describing what the boundaries are of this kind of chosen race that would be the ethnic identity of his of his utopian state. And I ask him, all right, you know, I'm a guy who, uh, you know, I studied in a Western classical tradition. I took six years of Latin and so forth, even though I'm <laughs> half Chinese. You know, I, I, I was not uh, educated in a Confucian tradition. So do I count as a half Chinese person? And his answer was a kind of jocular, oh, we, we're, we're nice people, we'll let you in, which you know, didn't seem all that funny to me. But it, it wasn't anything that, that really soured our conversation any more than the previous things that he, that he had said, which were very clearly uh, nostalgic for the Third Reich. So yeah, the, the fact that I was individually being impugned this way uh, didn't, uh, it wasn't any worse than the other things he was saying. Now, I'm now really just fascinated by the way that writing about ISIS may have prepared you for writing about Richard Spencer, because, I mean, the parallels seem so clear now. I mean, when you're talking to ISIS cell members, do you have personal discomfort or is that more like, I'm just, I'm a journalist, I'm interviewing them. I know that they hate me, but this is not, that's not part of my thought process right now. Occasionally, when talking to an ISIS supporter, uh, he or she sometimes will say something that is extremely alienating. You know, it, it's impossible to hear someone say, it would be great if all Yazidis were enslaved or killed, and to uh, you know, continue with the same lighthearted spirit that, that, that had characterized the beginning of the conversation. Um, but it, for me... Maybe it's just the beats that I've covered, but almost everyone I've spoken to in my career as a journalist has been, uh, to me, on the wrong track about something, often <laughs> loathsome in one way or another. That's your beat, huh? <laughs> it, it it matters a lot to me that, that, that I have the stamina to, to, to listen to a lot of horrible stuff uh, in – in the hopes of understanding where it comes from, and you know, also in the end, how to how to counter it. Um, but it, it's 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 one of the it's one of the occupational hazards of the job is becoming desensitized to uh, some really atrocious things that, that that people will will say to you. For me, after a couple days of listening to an Islamic State supporter talk about slavery, talk about beheadings, genocide, and so forth. Uh, I've I've learned to suppress the, the the puke reflex a bit and just try to listen. That's the same kind of of, of uh, posture that I've had to had have to ha- have had to have toward Richard as well. You're listening to With Friends Like These with Anna Marie Cox. So we talk about difference on this show and sort of navigating uh, the tension between everyone being human and everyone being different. You know, one thing that's different between people, this is pretty shameless, but I'm going to do it anyway. It's the way you sleep. So why is your mattress made for everyone? Why is your mattress one size fits all? You can have a truly customized mattress, but it would cost you like five or 10,000 bucks until now. Go to helixsleep.com and answer a few simple questions and they will run a 3D biomechanical model of your body through their proprietary algorithms. Ooh, science. 
they developed with the help of the world's leading ergonomic and biomechanics experts, and the result is the most comfortable mattress you've ever slept on. Helix customers report a 30% improvement in overall sleep quality. And for couples, they customize each side of the mattress. Your mattress arrives at your door in about a week, and shipping is completely free. That is why everyone from GQ Magazine to Forbes are all talking about Helix Sleep. You have a hundred nights to try it out, and if you don't love it, they will pick it up for free and give you a full refund. No questions asked. Go to helixsleep.com slash Anna and get $50 off your order. That's helixsleep.com slash Anna. Helixsleep.com slash Anna. Get a mattress that is just for you. The concept behind this show is kind of about the idea that we need to listen to people's ideas, even if we find them reprehensible, and having conversations with people you disagree with, people who may even, you know, find you personally objective as a human being um, or who have ideas that are, you know, uh, antithetical to your existence. And I don't have never called I've never talked about suppressing the gag reflex, but I have talked about the value of not stopping the conversation. Right. The value of somehow being able to continue the conversation, even if you are deeply offended or alienated. And in that respect, I've I've called upon you know, my tools as a reporter, because I always feel like if you get offended, the next thing you can ask, you can ask the question rather than be offended. You can ask the question, why do you feel that way? Right. Like that somehow takes you that can take you beyond the initial, you know, urge to vomit. I wonder, do you feel like you and, and as a journalist, it's easy for me to say, like, there's just value in understanding more. Do you feel like you ever fully understand these people who have these incredibly abhorrent ideas? Like, is there a point at which you're like, okay, I get it? Or is it always going to be kind of like, this is disgusting to me and I don't, I cannot, you know, fully incorporate it into how I think people should behave? I would say w- with the vast majority of people I've spoken to who are ISIS supporters, and this counts for Richard Spencer too, Yes, at some point you do start to sympathize and understand what they're where they're coming from, and and to to feel like you've got a pretty good handle on it. Um, there are always going to be some people, um, and I I think those would include probably a lot of people who are doing the actual you know hacking to death with machetes and the atrocities, rather than just the people who are supporting them passively from the sidelines, as 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 Richard or ISIS supporters in Australia might be. Uh, the, the the ones though who who simply believe rather than actually taking the step of of physically doing something that that I w- could not imagine doing those ones I, I think are are still within the realm of of the comprehensible the, there is though and you know I I don't think about this too much but it, it is it is something that 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 uh, that I suppose we should consider that there, there might be a point beyond which empathy for a reporter is undesirable. I mean, there's a famous note um, from Bertrand Russell to Oswald Mosley, the famous British uh, fascist in the 1930s, saying, look, I don't really want to talk to you because we're so far apart that there can be no, uh, there can be nothing gained from from conversation. And uh, I I, I can certainly see that that might be the case with, with certain people. That is, that there's something lost to to my soul, to the to my reader's soul, perhaps. If you uh, get to the point where you, you've put yourself in the mindset of someone who's doing something 
simply too awful, and the profit from from understanding that might be not worth the the loss from um, from 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 uh, you know subjecting yourself to that kind of soul destroying experience. So far, though, with, certainly with talking with Richard, but also talking with ISIS supporters, it doesn't feel like the the loss is incalculable. It, it doesn't feel like a a, a moral numbing that uh, it, that 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 will, will never be repaired. It, it it seems like something we still have to do because there's enough that that is worth understanding and enough that that we gain from that empathy that that, uh, that we really should have. I think the thing that you might be talking about, or at least is related to what you're talking about in terms of the cost of empathy, is, you know, the idea we talk a lot about normalization, right? Uh, Or the acceptability, having something be a part of the acceptable, you know, bounds of discourse. And that's, to me, sort of an overarching question in the Richard Spencer profile, right? Is And it's something that he sort of talks about, is that he's, he he we have to deal with him now right like he has bullied his way into our discourse and now you have exposed you know the atlantic has exposed like all these people to his ideas and i think you have do you feel like that's a cost do you feel like that's a discomfort I mean, to, to know that, like, I've, I have promoted this person, like, more people, I've given him a platform? No, I, I, don't, I don't think, first of all, that I've promoted him. Now, he's, he has a platform in that people know what his ideas are who didn't know what his ideas were before. And there is profit. There is, like, a, 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 a positive social benefit for people to understand what Richard's ideas are because they need to be fought. They can't be fought if they're misunderstood. So in, in that sense, I think it's mostly mostly positive. Now, if someone reads this profile of Richard Spencer and his ideas and walks away and says, that guy has everything right, um, first of all, I, I, I would urge them to read a bit more carefully because that, that's, that's, that's a, that would be a strange takeaway, I think, from, from this particular profile. And also, I, I, I think if, if that does happen, then we need to face the fact that, that it, it, it might not be because there's a profile in the Atlantic. It might be because he's got ideas that people actually believe in. And it wasn't the Atlantic that made their belief so. It was, it was something that existed before and that, that was attractive about his ideas, quite apart from the fact that they read about them in a, in a not especially flattering profile in one magazine. Yeah, I think something you do a good job of pointing out in the profile is that uh, Richard Spencer didn't create this historical moment, right? Like Richard Spencer did not create the Trump era. It's not his fault. And he's just available to take advantage of it. Yeah, I would say yes and no. So Richard is definitely opportunistic. The fact that Trump arose and Trump is what he is and that Trump is such an empty vessel, too, for the most loathsome kinds of ideologies he definitely knows that and has taken advantage of it. I think, too, though, that people have to start seeing that, that Richard's beliefs, they don't come out of nowhere either. Mm-hmm. They, are, um, they have antecedents in the early 20th century in Germany, in Europe in general in the 19th century. Like he, he, he spoke to me quite eloquently, actually, about the kind of nation creation that happened throughout the 19th century the creation of the German state, the, the Italian nation, the French, and so forth. And he is involved in his own mind, and I hope not also in reality, 
in the creation of a, sim- a sim- similar kind of, 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 of polity. Um, it's one that wouldn't be recognized in, during that moment of 19th century nationalism because it's a pan-national white European movement that, that elides all those distinctions between European states. But it, it's the same kind of process. And so it's, it's, not, it's not quite right to say that it's, he's, he's just a, a uh, lamprey on the side of, of ship Trump. <laughs> he's, he's definitely one that, that comes out of a much, much bigger ecosystem and that's trying to use the lessons of history um, from at least a couple hundred years back. I don't mean to say he's like just just a, a parasite. Actually, what I guess I kind of mean is that this to the degree to which he becomes more prominent, it is not necessarily because uh, his ideas are themselves like so appealing or he's so appealing. It's that we are in this historical moment where the groundwork, like the the environment, the economic and you know sort of racial moment that we're in. It made, it made his his ideology attract more attractive, perhaps, than it once that was twenty years ago. Yes, and I I think you're quite right about that. And by the way, there's a very clear parallel with ISIS too. ISIS, the ideas that they've promulgated have existed in Islam for a long time. Why didn't they exist thirty years ago in a way that that is were that would, in a way that was you know in our headlines on our on our cable news and so forth. The answer to that is there's a particular historical moment that creates the opportunity for it to flourish. That's the, the historical moment where we've got chaos in Syria and Iraq and a whole bunch of countries in the Muslim world that have lost their, their um, lost the support of their people. Very similar with this. The, the idea of creating a new nation out of, out of nothing is something that, that a Richard of the year 1962 or so could have had as well. But right now, there is this kind of the sense that that large numbers of Western countries with white people in them historically, white Christian people, are no longer uh, enjoying the support of a kind of critical mass uh, of of their population. And so Richard has his moment right now because of that, even though he's using ideas that have existed for a long time. I want to get back a little bit to the dangers or limits of empathy because I, I wasn't actually when I talked about giving him a platform or a profile, I, I did not mean to Im- imply that you gave him a flattering profile uh, or that you were somehow, you know, this was a good, you know, made it seem attractive in any way. Right. The thing that is in the back of my head, it's going back to this idea of just empathy, which is that I definitely have more empathy for Richard Spencer now. <laughs> <laughs> like you did a great job. You're a terrific writer. It's a it's a wonderful profile, and there's a you know pathos in it in this story that like part of me is angry at you. I have a little bit of sympathy for him because he seems kind of sad, right? Like there is sort of a a, a tragedy to him. I think um, maybe it's yeah, a tragedy that definitely. he earned. You know, that's completely justified, but it's there. Yeah, so the, the 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 interviews that I conducted with Richard uh, took place before and after this moment when he was punched in the face on television uh, to the the rejoicing and applause of basically the entire world. So I I got to talk to him right after that when he was still bruised and his eardrum was blown out, and it was at a point where he actually seemed kind of sympathetic. I felt sorry for him too. It was kind of you to say that, that, that 
you as a reader felt the same way. But uh, it, it was not a, a, a sympathy that I wanted ever to have with with a guy like that. But by the end of the the interaction, it, it, it was clear that he, like an, any normal person, was not ready for this. I mean, I don't just mean was not ready to take the punch, but was not <laughs> ready for the implications of the horrible politics that he espouses, which means having to walk around with basically with a bodyguard everywhere he goes so that someone doesn't uh, decide to hit him a, a, a bit harder in a way that he won't recover from. I, I, I think that that's, that, that sympathy is, is just something that we, we should feel and understand that you know, when, we, when we cheer on attacks on Richard, then uh, we don't want it to be normalized, that we would, 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 would cease to feel sympathy for, for someone who gets cold cocked. That, that's, 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 that's something that we should feel um, always a bit revolted at. Hmm. See, I, I'm on record as being pro-Nazi punching. And I have to say, like, I don't know if I, I'm anti-Nazi punching anymore, but I would say that I feel would feel worse about doing it. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think it's possible to be both someone who wants to see him suffer, um, not necessarily physically, um, and then also feel for him in his suffering, um, if that's makes any sense at all like that's i feel like where i am with him right now which is that i think he should have to suffer for for being for putting not just putting these ideas in the world because having the ideas the thought crime is not the problem right the problem is his actively trying to make them happen yes absolutely you know there there are some people who think that he has uh you know incited violence in a way that may actually be be criminal too. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not going to take a position on that, but I think that he having to live the rest of his life in fear, uh, it is, um, he may not deserve to have to, to wonder whether he's going to be murdered or assassinated, uh, at any given moment for the rest of his life. But he, he, he definitely should suffer for the, the, the ideas that he's put out there and then he's encouraged other people to have. Yeah, I mean, I guess the part of me thinks, you know, there are, there are people of color in this world that have to worry if they're going to be assassinated at any moment because of the ideas that Richard Spencer has, right? So yeah. I, the comparison that, that <laughs> uh, I quite liked, which I was surprised to find made so explicit, was uh, this Norman Mailer essay from the 1950s, The White Negro, where he describes exactly that. He He, he basically says that white people in the 1950s and couple decades before that, they felt like their culture wasn't good enough. Uh, they had to reach elsewhere for something that was edgy enough to be, uh, to be adequate to the experience of living in the shadow of the bomb and uh, recent experience of, of horrible wars and so forth. And so they found the difficulties under which black people had lived, which includes not being able to walk down the street with, 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 without fear. And Richard has exactly that fear right now. He worries when he walks down the street. In other words, he, he is subjected to a, what has been for black people a normal condition for, for uh, you know, for <laughs> as long as there have been black people in this country. So that's a poetic justice in a way. It's also something that, that, that you know, poetic justice and justice are not quite the same thing. But I, I, I can appreciate the irony. And uh, I... I'm also not pleased that, that 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 violence would be for anyone 
part of his daily life. I think it's amazing. I I, I had wondered if your um, writing about ISIS had any relationship to this piece. And it's it, did you realize it was going to be the parallel when you started or did you think it was going to be something different? I resisted the parallel when I started. There were enough people who said, oh, Trump is the American ISIS and said so very glibly and I think unfairly to Trump. I'm, I don't often rise to Trump's defense, but to say that, that he's genocidal seems to be giving him a little bit too much uh, credit for it, for intention of any kind is even malevolent. So um, I, I didn't think to begin with that it was going to take this very isis turn, but I was forced to, to, to bring it in that direction because Richard seemed to, to be similar enough to individual ISIS people from the United States uh, in his general view, from even coming from Dallas. You know? <laughs> so uh, the comparison is forced on me. Thanks again. Great piece. Um, I will check out your book, too. Um, anything else you want to add before we say goodbye? Uh, no, no. Uh, thank you so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Um, it's like I said, it's, uh, the pleasure is mine. Thank you. And that is it for the show. As usual, I must thank you for your patience in making it this far and then encourage you to rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever it is you get your podcasts. And please subscribe to the show. Subscribe to the entire suite of Crooked Media podcasts, which now includes DeRay McKesson's Pod Save the People, in addition to the lineup that I'm sure you are already familiar with. Uh, More important now than ever, I have to say, I know that... I self-promoting perhaps, but uh, I don't know how I would get through this current political moment without um, my friends in the pod. I am a friend of the pod and I have friends on the pod, but isn't the cool thing about all the pod save guys uh, that it sort of feels like you're having that after work discussion that you really want to be able to have with like super smart, informed people who also are frustrated and also really funny. Yeah, that's that is the reason for those pods. I also want to tell you that you can uh, contact the show via email at withfriendslikepod at gmail.com. Again, that's withfriendslikepod at gmail.com. You can tweet at the show at crooked underscore friends. You can follow me on Twitter at Anna Marie Cox, and you can follow our guests. Francesca Ramsey is at Chesley, which is C-H-E-S-C-A-L-E-I. G-H. Again, that's C-H-E-S-C-A-L-E-I-G-H. And Graham, uh, thankfully, you won't need to write this one down. He is at G-Caw, at G-C-A-W. Feel free to write us uh, with any questions uh, you'd like the show to tackle in the next coming weeks. We are putting together a listener question show and are looking for... Anything you might want to talk about that has to do with politics and relationships, the way that relationships complicate politics and politics complicate the relationship. And of course, if there's any uncomfortable conversations you think we should be having, let us know. Until next week. Again, thanks for listening. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream is a total chocolate game changer. We start with unbelievably creamy dark chocolate ice cream. Then we add different chocolate treats like chocolate cookies, chocolate cake, or chocolate brownies to make four decadent chocolate flavors. Because sometimes the thing that pairs best with chocolate (laughs) is more chocolate. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream. Extraordinary Dairy. 
Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. 